1: All right, welcome to Hoops tonight presented by FanDuel here at The Volume. We are live on AMP. It is time for our bi-weekly power rankings. And don't forget if you're watching on YouTube or on our podcast feed that AMP is the very first place that you guys can get our live breakdowns like this. So, you guys know the drill. We're going to um, remember, I'm going to be- I'm going to mention a lot today things along the lines of in the last two weeks or since our last list or in the last chunk of games. And the main reason why is I I, I don't want to be just a standard power rankings list that primarily focuses on the, on the postseason. For starters, I just want to do something different. And then secondly, I just don't really change my opinion that much based on regular season basketball unless I see something super drastic. Like, for instance, with the Warriors, yeah, it's been a rough start. I still think they're a top-tier contender. If I was doing a playoff power rankings, they'd probably still be in my top three right now. They're not even on the list this week. So the way that these power rankings lists are going to work is I really want to take it as an opportunity to focus on who's playing well right now, just to kind of help us keep things interesting during the regular season. So here are the teams that dropped off the list from last week. First is the Warriors. I had them up at 10 two weeks ago, Based on respect as the defending champs and their starting lineup was still playing really well. And then they went 3-4 and four since that list. They are 7th in offense during that span, but defense continues to be their issue. They're 16th over that span. And I talked last night about how it's not just the bench, it's the starters that are having issues too. That starting lineup of Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Andrew Wiggins... Draymond Green and Kevon Looney, over the course of the first six games, that grouping had a defensive rating of 103. And since that East Coast road trip, their last seven games, they have a defensive rating of 110. So they just, you know, we can talk about the bench all we want. We could talk about Klay Thompson missing shots. We could talk about Jordan Poole missing shots. The core five guys are also not defending the way they did to start the season. Uh, the Chicago Bulls. I had them at nine after their five and four start. They were defending really well. Well, the bottom has fallen out of their defense. They're twenty fifth in defense over the last two weeks, and they dropped five out of their last six games. The Toronto Raptors. They're four and four in the last two weeks. I was concerned about their inability to score and defend in the half court. If you guys remember, like they were third in offense, but and they, they were third in offense and eighth in defense. But if you looked at cleaning the glass and looked at their half court numbers, they weren't good at all. Well, it seems like other teams have figured that out. They were third in offense the first two weeks, 17th in offense the last two weeks, 8th in defense the first two weeks, 18th in defense the last two weeks. They were fourth in net rating the first two weeks. They were 22nd in net rating the last two weeks. They did get a nice little win at home last night over the Heat, and OG Ananobi was awesome on both ends of the floor. So, this is where I enjoy this particular structure. We might never talk about a team like the Indiana Pacers over the course of a season, but with this type of structure and power rankings, we get to talk about them this week. At number 10... I have the Indiana Pacers. They were four and one since our last list. They've won six out of eight overall, pushing them up over five hundred. They are now seven and six on the season. They beat the Raptors, they beat the Pelicans, they beat the 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 <laughs> the Heat and the Nets in that span. They're also fourth in defense since our last list, anchored by Miles Turner, who's been fantastic. He had twenty and ten with three blocks last night in a win over the Hornets. One of the revelations here in the early part of the season has been Benedict Matherin. You know, and I I liked him at Arizona. Remember, I'm from Tucson, so I follow the Wildcats closely. And, you know, there were a lot of things I liked. He was an obvious NBA athlete. He already was pretty built into his grown man body. And he was really competitive. You could see that fire in him, which, you know, manifested in his work ethic and things along those lines. So I liked him as a prospect, but my main concern was his jump shot. I thought his form was a little funky. It's got a hitch in it. It's kind of off to the side of his head. Uh, but he's shooting 45% on pull-up jumpers this year including 52% on pull-up threes. I remember when I started coaching high school basketball, I I coached with a a, a really good coach here in Tucson as one of his assistants obviously cuz my availability in the evenings is tough, so I primarily hope in the morning, help in the mornings with like skill development and stuff. And our head coach, he played professionally in Italy for like 7 years. He's point guard, just a basketball genius. And one of the things he told me was like don't worry so much about form. <clears throat> especially with young players, because it's just going to get in their heads, focus on things that are more controllable, like their base, making sure they get good lift every time, making sure they ditch unnecessary movement and things along those lines. And we could talk about Benedict Natherin's release all we want, but he's always had a really good base. He gets great lift. There's not a ton of wasted movement, and that's why he's knocking down shots right now. So a fun little stretch of basketball from the Indiana Pacers, and both Buddy Hield and Miles Turner look excellent. I still, I still remain shocked that the Lakers didn't see those guys as people that would um, give LeBron and Anthony Davis a real fighting chance. Number nine, the Dallas Mavericks. <clears throat> they are four and three since our last list. They did drop a game without Luka Doncic last night. They started the year great on offense and poorly on defense, and it's been the exact opposite since. So since our last power rankings, they are twenty eighth in offense and fifth in defense. I watched the Clippers game yesterday from, I believe it was Monday night, might have been Sunday. Dallas jumped out to a huge lead. Then, you know, the Clippers methodically worked their way back in by playing good defense, forcing Luka into a bunch of misses, getting out on the other end and scoring. John Wall had a really nice game, um, getting getting to the basket, knocking down pull-up 15-footers and stuff like that. The game was tied at 93-93 late. And both teams were double-teaming the Stars, so the Mavericks were double-teaming Paul George and the Clippers were double-teaming Luka Doncic. But in this four-possession sequence, the Clippers went down, they double-teamed Paul George, he turned it over. Then the Mavericks went down, they double-teamed Luka Doncic, got a wide-open three for Reggie Bullock because Luka made the play, right? Then they went down and they double-teamed Paul George again, he turned it over again. And then they went down and they double-teamed Luka Doncic. He made the right play. Dwight Powell on the short roll hit Reggie Bullock on the left wing. He hit another big shot and the game was over. So it was kind of an interesting game back and forth where Luka just made the right plays at the end of the game and PG turned it over twice. It was also good to see Reggie Bullock finally get going hitting those massive threes. Christian Wood is also averaging 20 points per game in their last three, and they're toning back Luca's usage a bit. It's only 36% since our last list when it was up over 41% to start the season. All right, number eight, the Memphis Grizzlies. They are four and three since our last list, 21st in offense and third in defense. I wanted to talk about Desmond Bain for a second. He hurt his big toe, so he's going to be out for a few weeks. But he's having a fantastic season, fueled by his improvements as a shot creator. If you guys remember... I, I always really like Desmond Bain's spot up shooting and a little bit of his relocation shooting. You know, some of that stuff's off the dribble, but not too much. More mostly attacking closeouts, right? And uh, I love his competitiveness. He competes on the defensive end as well. Lots to love about Desmond Bain, but I've never thought he, he's a little too upright and he doesn't have a great first step. And so, and he doesn't handle the ball super well. So I was concerned about his shot creation well. He's put a ton of work over the course of the offseason. I was listening to a a Grizzlies broadcast the other day, and they were talking about this. He um, relentlessly focused on his off-the-dribble shooting and just his ball handling in general. Well, look at this. He's 46% on seven pull-up jumpers uh, per game, including 47% from three. And he's getting into the restricted area to attempt shots 4.3 times per game, up from 2.7 last year. So he's just getting to the basket a lot more, although he is missing some layups right now. Uh, Memphis desperately needed a second legit shot creator. If Desmond Bain becomes that, that's huge for them. Um, number, seven, number seven, the New Orleans Pelicans. They're five and three since our last list. Wins over Chicago twice. They beat Memphis. They also beat the Warriors. Ninth in offense and 10th in defense since our last list. Really balanced attack. They got six guys averaging double figures in this stretch. They've also been really good in crunch time closing games. They're three and one in games that involved crunch time with a 127 offensive rating and a 95 defensive rating when the game is within five with less than five minutes left. Um, The Sacramento Kings at number six. They are five and one since our last list, seven and two since their 0-4 start. They're second in offense and 19th in defense over the last two weeks. De'Aaron Fox's improvement as a jump shooter is one of the main things that is driving this resurgence from the Kings. Last year, he shot 34% on catch-and-shoot jumpers. This year, he's shooting 50% on catch-and-shoot jumpers. Obviously, a big deal, especially with Demontis Sabonis on the floor and the attention that he commands around the basket. Demontis has also been fantastic over the course of the last couple of weeks. And then De'Aaron Fox is up to 42% on 8.4 pull-up jump shots per game, which is really solid. He's been going to that pull-up, too, a lot at the end of games, and it's been going in for him. All right, number five, the Phoenix Suns. They are 3-4 and since our last list, but they've been decimated by injuries. CP3 has a heel issue. Cam Johnson tore his meniscus. Obviously, Jay Crowder has been out the entire season because he demanded a trade, so they're just a little thin right now. Uh, But they're still 13th in offense and 14th in defense over this stretch and manufacturing some wins, including an impressive win last night against the Golden State Warriors. I was really impressed by Devin Booker last night, yet again, passing the basketball. That's been something that I've been on all season. I think it's been the biggest driver of his success as he's been rising up the league over the course of the last couple of seasons. And then campaign is doing a really nice job filling in for Chris Paul. He's averaging 19 points and 6 assists. He gets a ton of dribble penetration. Last night I was talking about how he's like the fastball to Chris Paul's change-up. You know, Chris Paul methodically works in the lane and tries to bait defenders into getting out of position so that he can make passes to advantage situations. Campaign. It's a lot more straightforward than that. He's just getting downhill and drawing help, kicking out. With Everything with Phoenix is about getting to that backside so you can have guys like Damian Lee and Mikael Bridges making plays um, because they're really talented, and when you give them advantages, they're going to score. And Damian Lee, for instance, is shooting 17 for 30 from three since our last list. Number four, the Portland Trailblazers. They're 5-2 since our last power rankings with wins over the Pels, the Heat, and the Suns. They're 18th in offense and 12th in defense. They're doing it. In crunch time. They've won three games in crunch time during the span. As a team, they're shooting uh, 56% from the field and 64% from three in clutch situations over the last two weeks. Jeremy Grant is playing incredibly well in this span, despite some injuries, you know, because Dame's been in and out of the lineup with that calf issue. He's averaging 27, 6, and 3 in this 5-2 and stretch. On 56% shooting from the field and 60% from three. You know... I was kind of uh, intrigued by Jeremy Grant a lot over the last couple of years. I wanted the Lakers to get him when I was covering the Lakers. You know, when he went to Detroit, he he from Denver for the same amount of money that Denver offered him. He wanted to be a lead ball creator, right? So he goes to Detroit and he has a pretty productive season. I think he averaged somewhere around twenty-four points per game, and he was relatively efficient. Next year, he was kind of injury-plagued, right? But what you're seeing is, you know, when someone goes that route, transitioning from off-ball to on-ball type of creation. There's an adjustment period, and then there's like a comfortability that builds over time. And what you're seeing is a player that that is only in his third season really in this type of role – And he's thriving in it now because he's getting a lot more reps. He's a lot more comfortable. You're seeing development as a pull-up jump shooter. His handle looks great. There was that game against the Pels that we covered, I think, last week where he was hitting pull-up jump shots to get the defender to come up on him and then using counter moves to get to the rim and make him big plays to lead his team to a win without Damian Lillard or uh, Yusuf Nurkic on the floor. So a really, really nice pickup for Portland. And, hey, they're a top-four team here early in the season. Number three, the Denver Nuggets. They're five and two since our last list, and their one of those two losses was without Loke, uh, without Nikola Jokic. This has been a weaker stretch of their schedule, though. Um, just for a little bit of context, the only really good team they played during this span was Boston, and they did get rolled in that game. But they're making some progress on defense. They're up to up to 13th in the league in defense over their last seven games, and then Jamal Murray just looking a little bit more like himself every single day. Um, uh, hit some big shots last night against the Knicks. He's up to 19 points per game on 53% true shooting in his last seven games and 41% on 10 pull-up jumpers per game. Like to see that closer to 45%, but once he gets there, that's when we'll really know that Jamal Murray is back to what he used to be because he's one of the best pull-up jump, uh, jump shooters in the league. Bones Highland, after a rough start to the season, is also starting to get going. He made three massive threes Uh, in the late third quarter and early fourth quarter against the Knicks last night. He had uh, one to start the fourth quarter where he got an and one falling forward. It was one of the most bizarre, um, you know, and one threes that I've ever seen. Uh, That gave them a big lead. I think they went up like 88-80, but they ended up falling apart. Just without Jokic, they just don't have the interior presence that they need, especially against a Knicks team that has a good amount of interior size. Uh, Bones Highland is shooting 55% on five pull-up threes per game since our last list. All right, number 2, the Milwaukee Bucks. They are 4 and 3 since our last list, but still just a half game back of the best record in uh in the entire league, and injuries are really the driver of this current little a uh, somewhat um, less impressive stretch. Giannis missed three games. He had a foot-ankle issue. He's also only averaging 24 points on 39% shooting uh, in the four games that he did play, so he's obviously a little banged up right now. Now Drew Holiday is out with an ankle issue, so they went into last night's game down three starters, and with one of their starters not qu- uh, quite at 100% yet, Bobby Portis was starting. Javon Carter started, who's been really good, and then Marjan Beauch- uh, uh, Beauchamp, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, um uh he's a rookie and he had a little bit of a rough shooting night last night, but he shows a lot of flashes defensively and he's got a good frame. Uh, they're still just finding a way to win games. How is that? Because they defend. They're sixth in defense since our last list, despite being down all of those players. And Brooke Lopez is one of the early season favorites for defensive player of the year this year. He made seven threes and blocked three shots last night in that win against Cleveland. And so despite all that bad luck, despite Giannis being you know, hurt and out of the lineup a little bit, despite Drew being out, despite Pat Connaughton being out, despite Chris Middleton being out, despite all of that, they went 4-3 and three because that's what teams with championship aspirations do. They have a real identity that they can lean on when there's lineup turmoil. There is a large chasm for me between the top two teams, Boston and Milwaukee, and the rest of the league right now. I expect some other teams to join that level over the course of the season, but right now Boston and Milwaukee look like they're in a class of their own. Number one, the Boston Celtics. They had a defensive clinic versus Atlanta last night to bring them to 8-0 since our last list. They are first in offense since our last list and first in offense for the season with a comfortable margin. They are up to 11th in defense over their last eight games, driven in large part because of their really good defensive performance last night against Atlanta. Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are still killing it they're averaging 56 13 and 8 in the last two weeks and then I wanted to talk about Marcus Smart for a second because you know I've been a little as good as Jason Tatum has been offensively I was a little disappointed because he kind of stopped being the the playmaker that he was towards the end of the year last year now I wanted him to do that because he wasn't a great isolation player and he wasn't getting to the basket and finishing well enough and he needed to improve more in those areas and he was already showing some high uh, showing some promise as a playmaker. So I thought it made more sense for him to take that role and for Jalen Brown to kind of be your, you know, point him and shoot him type of, of score. Well, as Tatum has kind of gone into the season, he's been much better isolating, much better getting to the rim, much better scoring efficiently. So it's kind of worked out that he let go of some of that playmaking rope. And the guy who slotted into that role is Marcus Smart. Um He's he's been I, I want to say he's averaging a career high in, in assists right now. He's averaging like eight or nine assists per game since our last power rankings, and he is taking on that specific role of getting dribble penetration, starting the advantage creation process for Boston that they do such a good job of extending because they have so many good players in Grant Williams and Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum and and uh, and uh, you know Malcolm Brogdon on the back end Al Horford you know, uh, spotting up in the corners, whatever it is. They just have so many guys that can expand the advantage that they just need that guy to get that initial dribble penetration and kick out. And right now, Marcus Smart is the guy that's filling that role. And then lastly, Grant Williams. He's 50% on four threes per game and has been excellent defensively um, uh, in the last couple of weeks. You know, like I said last night, he bet on himself turning down that extension to try to get more. And he's been so good to start the season that he's probably going to get it.
0: Bundled savings variant are not available
1: in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and C.J. Toledano. It is an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories From his time in the NBA, CJ will bring his A-list comedian buddies to keep it light and fire off some hoops takes. Plus, John will be inviting current and former NBA players, friends, and teammates to join the show as well to give their unfiltered accounts of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Does the craziness of everyday life leave you feeling stressed and shedding? Promo code HOOPS, H-O-O-P-S. That's Nutrafol.com, promo code HOOPS. Robert Williams. They look like the best team in the world right now, and they deserve the top spot on our list. You might notice next to me here on the screen, my good friend, Mr. Carson. We've had no Carson for a while because we've been waiting on a specific piece of equipment that we finally got installed so that we can functionally make this whole thing work. But dude, it is good to see you, man. How are you today?
2: Oh, Jason, it is just a joy to be here. And
1: I'm great. Very happy. Some great basketball going on. Hell yeah. We've got five questions from the early chunk of the season here. Really quickly before we get started, please subscribe to the YouTube channel so you don't miss any more of our videos. Follow me on Twitter at underscore Jason LT so you guys don't miss show announcements or any film breakdowns that we do. And if you miss one of these episodes and you can't get back to YouTube, remember you can find them wherever you get your podcasts under hoops tonight. And on that note, Carson. Let's get to question number one. What do you got? Question number one. Despite their struggles, the
2: Warriors and the Clippers are still co-favorites to get out of the West, Jason. They're both plus 330 on FanDuel to win the Western Conference. Does that make sense to you? Are they still deserving favorites?
1: Yes, because... Well, specifically with the Warriors, I'll say yes. I don't feel nearly as optimistic about the Clippers. I mean... For starters, there's nobody else in the Western Conference that's really blowing anybody away. Like, Portland's off to a good start, but then they drop a game at home to the Brooklyn Nets last night. You know, like the Nuggets, they're 9-5, and but they have lost a lot of games to good teams, and their defense isn't nearly where you expect it to be. So no one's really impressing in a way that would lead you to believe that the Clippers or Warriors are in trouble out West. Now, is there a chasm forming between them And the Bucs and Celtics, absolutely. I think everybody would agree with that. But in the Western Conference, I'm not overly concerned. With the Warriors, they've got a bunch of issues. Their defense has fallen off a cliff. They're 17th in their last seven games. Their starters have a 110 defensive rating during that span as well, which is not good. Klay Thompson and Jordan Poole are both struggling a bit offensively. And then their bench has trouble holding leads. They're getting outscored by 13 points per 100 possessions with Steph off the floor when they're outscoring teams by seven when Steph is on the floor, which is a 20-point swing. But everything is fixable. The starters aren't defending, but we know they can, and we know they will. They were one of the best defensive units in the league to start the season, and they were outstanding in the playoffs last year, so they will again be outstanding soon. It's just a matter of commitment. Clay Thompson is shooting 27% on a wide-open threes. Hot take here, Carson. I think those are going to start going in eventually. Yes, he's had some shot selection stuff, but – if really you want Clay to be aggressive, you just want him to be making shots. People are really only complaining about the shots because they're not going in. And then Jordan Poole's a young player who's gonna, occasionally going to have some cold stretches. But they're going to find a way to bolster the bench. They've got trades they can make um, involving the young players. They're going to be a buyout destination because they'll have minutes available. It's a great culture, you know, a West Coast and uh, a chance legitimately to win a title. They're going to get a good buyout wing somewhere. And then they could always do things like dusting off Andre Guadala or increasing the starters' minutes as we get closer to the playoffs to just make the bench less important. And then with the Clippers, like, they're playing better, but they're 27th in offense in this last 10-game stretch. Even when they've gone 7-3, they can't and score. And then Kawhi, like, dude, Kawhi was doing janky stuff like playing one first-half shift. To try to limit his minutes. And he still broke down. So, like, what in what universe is he gonna suddenly survive the rest of the season, let alone ever look like the old Kawhi? So with with the Clippers, I, I'm a lot more pessimistic, but the Warriors issues I think are fixable.
2: I think the Warriors are certainly in an interesting spot. And I know that you've been a big advocate of make the mid-season move, go out there, put all your pieces in because this is a title caliber core with an all-time great player, and the future entry you get from the Moody's, the Kamingas, the Wiseman's just does not compare in value to the immediacy of, hey, we can win a title right now, and I completely agree with that. I also think it is absolutely necessary because this top six is title caliber. We saw it last year. That is undeniable. I don't think anybody's really significantly regressed here. Steph looks even better. Clay is playing very poorly, but it's like you said. I mean, for most of his career, Clay's job has been to make contested shots. And guess what? He's been inconsistent since coming back from injury, but I still think he'll shoot 37% from three. He'll be okay. But the reality is that the loss of Gary Payton II and Otto Porter Jr. have really completely changed the outlook of this bench. And, you know, Anthony Lamb is the best bench player outside of Jordan Poole right now. And so I like Dante DiVincenzo. He has not looked like the same player he was before his injury in Milwaukee. Jamichael Green has been very meh, so I just don't think you can count on this bench rotation right now to be good enough to really make a meaningful push in the playoffs, but they're not that far away, so I think they have to make a move, but it's not a move that's at all impossible to make, especially with the assets they have, which are decreasing in value, but I'm sure still hold some intrigue.
1: Yeah, and a lot of the options, you know, because I've had Warriors fans ask in the comments, like, hey, can you provide some options? And it's the same kind of trade targets that you're seeing elsewhere around the league. They could go the route of trying to poach a couple of the role players that are playing for the Utah Jazz, right? They could go after, you know, Yaka Pirtle mm-hmm. and Doug McDermott from the San Antonio Spurs, giving them a mm-hmm. legit fr- – because, like, right now they're one front court injury away from the season basically being over. Like, if Kevon right. Looney or Draymond Green goes down, they're going to have a, an extremely hard time winning any games – um, you know, I, I look at, you know, Miles Turner, for instance, as a guy who, you know, is playing really good basketball this season. And yes, he's been mentioned with the Lakers, but the Lakers don't seem to want him. So someone else is probably going to get him because the Pacers aren't going to, you know, ride this out. Yeah. They're over 500 now, but they're eventually going to pull the plug on all of this and they're going to, you know, take a first round pick or something along those lines. And you might be able to get him for one of those young players. If you're golden state, especially since I'm sure Indiana would like to get a good wing in there alongside their their new backcourt so you know there's options out there they they just have a bunch of different directions they can go if anthony lamb pans out which he's been playing really well shooting the ball well guarding multiple positions if Moses moses moody gets it together they dust off andre Iguodala, they increase minutes for the starters they might not need to do anything but when the time comes in february they'll have the flexibility with a bunch of different ways that they can go, and so I think I mean that's why like of all the teams to be concerned about, I just wouldn't be like it. It's not there, like you said, Steph looks better than ever. There's the, the the best lineup for the Warriors just isn't guarding the way they used to, and it's it's only been like four months. It's not like they've lost that capability. They're just this is classic, you know, title defense malaise. Right.
2: The Clippers are also interesting to me because they have been so great defensively, number two in defensive rating on the year, and that is probably I would say actually certainly the more reliable predictor of if you're looking at which end of the floor which can we trust more certainly it's the defense compared to the offense without Kawhi because so much of what the Clippers do is predicated on the isolation the drive and kick trusting their perimeter guys to go out there and get buckets like their third in isolation percentage They're their 29th in passes made which is just how they've always played basketball but When Reggie Jackson has not been great, when Norman Powell has not been great, when John Wall hasn't been great, and when you don't have Kawhi, that's basically their entire offensive identity kind of thrown out the window. So I'm not overly confident that Kawhi is going to be himself or healthy. We just don't know. So I think right now, I would certainly put the Suns and the Nuggets right in that same tier. I think all these teams are flawed. I think there's uncertainty with all of them, and I don't think any of them compare to the top tier of teams out east. Certainly agree on that.
1: Yeah, I put the Nuggets as the one team that I would put as a legitimate Western Conference threat. They're 9-4 and when Jokic plays, and that was despite at the start of the season Jamal Murray still kind of working his way back. Mm -hmm. And Bones Highland did not shoot well to start the season, but Jamal looks a little bit more and more like himself each and every game that he plays. Bones Highland is shaking off that rough start. Now he's making his shots again. In this recent stretch from the Nuggets, he's shooting like 55% on pull-up threes or something insane like that. Their defense is still just terrible, but Mm -hmm. uh, we know that they're capable of playing better than they have. They're never going to be a top-five defense, but they should be closer to 15, and I think they're 23rd right now. So they've just got a bunch of different ways that they can improve. And then to put it simply, the Clippers and the Warriors, that Jokic matchup is just really tough for them. You know, the mm-hmm. they, the Warriors have beaten the Nuggets in the playoffs with the injuries that they've sustained, but they've suffered some losses to the fully healthy version of the Nuggets during the regular season because it's just a different matchup for them physically. And then obviously we've seen what happens when Jokic comes into contact with the Clippers. So I'd put the Nuggets as my biggest threat to those two teams.
2: I would agree with you there. Suns have looked good, but I think their depth is a bit of an issue. And the Nuggets have the potential of being the best offense in basketball on and- any given night. And that gives you a pretty high ceiling. Let's flip here from some teams that have struggled, but overall there's still a pretty high confidence level. And I mean, certainly Vegas is still respecting them to a team that has been a complete circus this entire year. And it seems that every, not even week, every few days there's a new obstacle thrown at them. So Jason, does the net season get more ridiculous or less
1: ridiculous as the year goes on? You know, Because the Nets have so much talent on paper, there's always the chance that it could improve. You know, Mm -hmm. like if what we saw from Ben Simmons last night is the way he plays the rest of the season, that's encouraging. KD plays like an MVP. Kyrie Irving comes back. They defend the way they defended. You know, getting what you're getting from You Don't Want Nobby, for instance, who, by the way, did a really nice job defending Damian Lillard on switches. He's just super tall and super long and can knock down threes and he's actually a pretty decent athlete, right? Like, you know, there's a bunch of good there, but as I'm putting that all together, it kind of feels like one of those like same game parlays where I make a $2 bet that has like a $1,700 payout. (laughs) Like, yeah, it could all go that way and we could all get rich or the far more likely scenario is that one or two of those things go wrong, which leads to the domino effect of everybody else, going off the rails and then it goes south you know like the yeah we we've just we've just seen this movie before they can play good basketball in the right matchups two or three games in a row like last night that was an impressive win they defended Damian Lillard extremely well they um uh, down the stretch of that game kind of strangled the pace got better shots and it looks good but it's a lot of its matchup dependent you know they struggle against the kings because they've got a couple front court players that are more physical right you know and then portland not so much and then you know, the, the, there's also the reality of the Celtics-Bucks matchups. Like, uh, no matter what the idealized version of this Nets team is, specifically, uh, specifically Boston and Milwaukee are equipped to not just beat the Nets, but kind of snatch their heart with the way that they play on both ends of the floor. So, like, you know what, Josiah never stops believing. He's like the 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 ex the ex that's still or the guy who's still in love with his ex, and did, no matter how often she stabs him, in the, stabs him in the back. He just keeps going back. You know, it's one of those types of deals. But my guess is it gets more ridiculous. But there's, it's always on the table that Kyrie comes back, Ben Simmons turns into wing Draymond, Kevin Durant plays like an MVP, Seth Curry does his thing, Joe Harris makes a bunch of threes like he did. You get a couple of key role player performances. Yeah, th- there is there is a ceiling here, but that same ceiling has existed all season for various reasons, and it just it continues to go up and down the way that it has.
2: I don't know how much more ridiculous things can get, but I also wouldn't really predict them to get less ridiculous. And I agree (laughs) that last night was, outside of that Knicks game, maybe their best all-around effort of the year. I still think Portland, I mean, clearly just felt to me like a more talented team. It was kind of an issue of shot-making for them in spots, but the Nets were locked in defensively, like you said. Watanabe was great. Joe Harris was finally making shots. But it still just feels far too ambitious to bet on everything consistently coming together and gelling, especially when you reintroduce Kyrie, even though obviously he elevates your offensive ceiling. It's just like the defense was abysmal when he was out there. We have no reason to have any sort of confidence in the chemistry, in the cohesion of this team. Simmons, I mean, he finally scored 15 points and you know he attacked a couple times downhill and out of the post but he's just so clearly not the same athlete he's not the same defensively i think mean, he's still in his head i mean he only took six shots a couple of them were like one was a lob yeah, off he an inbound every one was shot another lob.
1: and took six yeah.
2: <laughs> exactly it's like he is just so so far from what he was what we could have ever expected him to be so i think we should just buckle in and not invest in any Nets' success and invest in a lot more hijinks and mayhem because I really – I don't see this team winning a playoff series. It's like to be fully healthy and committed and together and like each other and play both
1: ends against a really good top tier out east, I just think, no way. Well, that that's the key because – Bad things happen to every basketball team. That's a dirty little secret. There's two different kinds of teams out there. There's the teams that complain as the bad things happen as they spiral out of control and then the teams that like you you just look and it's like, "Oh, the Bucks won again last night." And whoa, two starters were out and, mm-hmm. and Giannis was <laughs> 6 for 17. Like, what in the world? Like you, like you you look at it and it's like 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 Giannis messed up his foot and is is been like below 40% from the field in his last four games has missed three of the last seven games. And Drew holidays out with an ankle issue, Pat Connaughton's out, Chris Middleton's out and they're just winning games because Mm -hmm. they're just in the locker room. There's such a buy-in down the roster that every night you're getting a consistent product. And yeah, even in the downsides, like this past two week stretch, all that went wrong for the bucks and they went four and three, you know, and they beat a Cavs team. Um, uh, The other day that was, you know, obviously down Jared Allen, but had everybody else available. So like, it's just it's just the difference between the top and the bottom, like the Nets have demonstrated that a little bit of adversity kind of causes them to fracture, you know, and and that sort of thing isn't going to suddenly change in this case. Yeah, I
2: completely agree. And before the Nets started destroying themselves and embarrassing themselves, they were destroyed and embarrassed by the Boston Celtics in the playoffs last year, who have been really exceptional this year. They're 12 and three. They're on pace to have the best offense in basketball history. And obviously, they've done this all without Ime Odoka. So, Jason, do you think that his impact on the Celtics was overrated?
1: Not necessarily, but I do think that in general, when we see things like this, we don't give enough credit to the other party. So, for instance, like Ime Udoka is a tough guy. And he was brought in to help specifically with toughness, with a core of players, and Marcus Smart, Jason Tatum, and Jalen Br- excuse me, and Jalen Brown, who had struggled a little bit with toughness over the course of the years, right? And yes, y- Udoka helped with that transition that led to that Finals run last year. But you also got to give those guys credit for changing. To me, it reminds me of like Kobe and Pau Gasol you know, the narrative is like Kobe changed Pau Gasol. And like, I don't doubt that Kobe's competitiveness and toughness had an impact on him. But give Pau Gasol some credit for just toughening up As he got into late round playoff series consistently, you know, a lot of times it's the pain and suffering of the loss that helps lead to that toughness as well. And again, so it's, it's kind of that kind of thing. Like I give a good chunk of the credit to Kobe and I give a good chunk of the credit to Powell. In this case, what did I say all summer after the Ime Yudoka uh, thing came down? I was like, yes, Ime helped with this, but... I think the change has already been made by the core players, and they will continue to exhibit that toughness now that Ime Udoka is gone. And that's exactly what has happened. And, you know, give those guys credit. They just, you know, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown came out uh, three, four months after an embarrassing loss in the finals, and they both look like better players than they were last year. That's a credit to them. Jason Tatum was a bad isolation player last year. This year, he's been a good isolation player. He's increased his efficiency in a bunch of very important areas. He was a bad mid-range scorer last year. This year, he's a good mid-range scorer. You know, like you're just seeing improvement from those guys. Give them credit. Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, too, in key moments of this series uh, in the season. Even though the team defense hasn't been as good as you'd hope, they've locked in, and they're still two of the best perimeter defenders in the entire league. And then, dude, Marcus Smart. What he's done for them offensively as a dribble creator, just getting into the gaps of the defense and uh, creating that initial advantage is super impressive. He's one of the best pick-and-roll ball handlers in the league this year.
2: Yeah, I think you put it very well. My thought is kind of what Udoka did last year was extremely important and extremely impressive, but I also thought this year, bringing in Joe Mazzulla, who has been there, It's a lot easier to sustain that defensive culture once it's been established, those offensive principles once they've been established. It's like how Luke Walton could come in and coach the Warriors to being 39-4 and because they had already done the handiwork behind Steve Kerr in establishing those habits, those principles. And then, of course, it's difficult to sustain those things, but then it's a matter of the commitment by the players. They're aware of what they need to do, and clearly the Celtics players are – committed and continuing to improve. So I don't really think that that'll ever come back to bite them. Do you think right now, if you had to pick between the top teams out East, are the Celtics the team that you would trust the most to win at all?
1: No, I still give I still give an edge to the bucks. Um, but mm-hmm. I do think that the Celtics have gained ground in a sense, compared to where you might've felt about those two teams after their Eastern conference semifinal last year. Um, but yeah, I, w- I wanted to give one last story to just kind of like hammer this point home when I was in junior college when I was playing up in Utah, I had a coach. His name was Carter Rowe. Now he coaches at Arizona Western, um, uh, which, which is in a conference here in Arizona. And like, he was one of the guys who really targeted my lack of toughness when I was mm. a young basketball player. And I remember like vividly, like ice cold Utah mornings doing planks on the soccer field where the, the the grass is frozen. And I'm like quitting on the drill and stuff. And he's like down, just screaming in my face, telling me I'm not tough and stuff like that. And like, he worked on me really hard over the course of that season. And it's like, he hasn't been my coach since that season for obvious reasons. But his impact has lingered with me. And a lot of the things that changed about me as a player that year are are still a part of my basketball identity to this day. And that's kind of like the way that uh, a coach can impact any basketball player. And so that's kind of the way I see the UDOKA thing. He came in, he worked with those guys for a year, he targeted some specific weaknesses for them in terms of mental toughness. That impact is there even now that he's gone.
2: And now that role in your life is taken on by producer Ryan Brumley who's yelling at you when you're <laughs> down there in the gold. <laughs> All right. So one of the main stories of this season, or one of the most fun stories, I think, has been the explosion of Shea Gilgis alexander and you've talked about it recently. He's now at 37-plus in three straight games. He's averaging 32 on the year. Is he a top-10 player in the league now?
1: So this is a delicate conversation because uh, I, I- – I- I've been doing, I've been going out of my way for this season to really focus on evaluating players based on this season. Cause I have some like longstanding philosophies. Like I'm not going to put younger players over experienced players that have been there and done that in terms of the way I rank them in the grand scheme of things. You know, like for instance, I had LeBron fourth before the season. I will not adjust that in my grand scheme rankings until after the playoffs this year right mm-hmm. but as we zoom in on this season has LeBron been a top, top four player absolutely not he's been somewhere between 15 and 11 right like you know Tatum I had him down at six he's actually been better than that this season in terms of just in the vacuum of this season you know like the, as we go down that list there's kind of a difference between talking about what's Going on this year versus the grand scheme of things, has Shea Gilders Alexander been a top ten player in this season? Unquestionably, maybe even top five, right? But as I'm ranking him against the other players in the league in the grand scheme of things, I would wait until after the season. I would want like, I, how am I supposed to? For instance, I had Paul George somewhere around like eleven, right, in the in the list before the season. Why would I put SGA over Paul George, who two years ago? When Kawhi went down, dragged his team with the to within two wins of an NBA finals berth. Like that's not fair, in my opinion. So just remember in general, for everybody who's listening, when I'm having these kinds of conversations and talking about these kinds of lists if it's during the regular season it's a different type of kind of like measuring system than what i would use outside of the season but he's unquestionably been a top 5 top 10 top 5 ish player this year he's a top tier rim finisher like he finishes at the rim better than just about everybody except for the the usual guys you'd expect at the top he's a top tier pull up jump shooter he shoots in the high 40s on huge volume. He's excellent in pick and roll. He's 84th percentile among pick and roll ball handlers, and he's a massively disruptive defender. Gets a ton of steals and blocks for a 195 pound guard. You can't you can't argue with the results this season.
2: I think that that's very sound logic, and I'm generally pretty tentative. At least I try to be to lift people above somebody else because of a regular season, or certainly only a stretch of regular season play. But he looks like a top 10 player right now. And I think, honestly, there might only be concretely like seven or so guys who I would say they're better than SGA right now. I think that you hit on it. I mean, he's a top three paint guard in the league unequivocally. He's always had that unbelievable change in pace and slinkiness to his game. His paint footwork is ridiculous, the variety of finishes in there. And then now he's paired it with this elite mid-range pull-up jump shooting game where he's 51% for mid-range and everyone's terrified of SGA getting all the way downhill and he just has this incredible ability to stop on a dime, to step back, and to make all those shots. And it's also just incredible that now we have a couple guards in the league, him even more so than Ja, but guys who, they're both shooting well from three this year and they have that a bit in their game, but really guards who are predicated on getting downhill, getting to the bucket, and that's their greatest strength, and they are truly among the best players on the planet. Let me ask you this. How do you feel about the OKC approach around SGA when they have maybe a top-10 player? When he's on the floor, they outscore opponents by four points per 100 possessions. They're 11 points per 100 possessions better with him, and yet still, obviously, their roster is so far away from accomplishing anything of significance. Is that justifiable to you at this point? Is that going to become an issue In your eyes, like, what's your take on
1: that? Well, I I think we can make that call from this point looking forward. Because at the end of the day, we knew SGA was good. We didn't know he was this good. You know, Mm -hmm. like like, the way we're talking about this, I guarantee you the front office is talking about this too. Like, they're having new conversations now like, okay, mm-hmm. it turns out we have one <laughs> of the 10 best basketball players alive. What do we do about this? You know, like there's Chet Holmgren potentially coming back. They actually, Sneaky, have a bunch of really good wings, um, including Lou Dort, who's one of the best defensive wings that we have in the league. Chet Holmgren mm-hmm. and Alexey Pokoshevsky represent two really interesting stretch bigs. So they can consistently play five-out basketball in a way that a lot of teams can't functionally play. You know, there uh, it, it like specifically with SGA 2 What you said that's so interesting. We have we have a lot of guards who are excellent downhill, and then we have a lot of guards that are excellent pull up jump shooters. What we don't have is like a guard who's both. You know the Bradley Beals and the Devin Booker's and the Jamal Murray's of the world. They'll get in the lane and they'll make one or two shots a game, right? Like they could beat you to the basket if you're if the, mm-hmm. the if things shake up a certain way. Shea is like finishing at the rim more frequently than Ja Morant, while taking in uh, taking eleven something pull up jump shots a game and making like forty seven percent of them. Like that is the thing that is kind of unheard of here. Is he's got the all the pull-up jump shooting with all of the downhill stuff. And that's what makes him so, mm-hmm. so exciting. But my guess is that whatever approach the Thunder had, which was to absorb as many picks as possible, you know, develop these young wings and give SGA plenty of time to, to develop his skill set while at the same time not wearing him out physically because they're resting him all the time and all this kind of stuff. They were doing that. Now they've got to change their approach. Chet's coming back. Now they'll probably target more veteran players to surround SGA in them, you know, they might look to, I know they signed Dort to an extension. They might try to piece a couple of these guys together and target a star wing out there for a couple of picks and, and, and try to go at it with, you know, Chet. And some kind of star wing and SGA, but I'm not going to be critical of OKC's front office necessarily, unless we're looking at them this time next year. And SGA is putting up massive numbers on a garbage team Mm -hmm. again. I think that's when we could start having that conversation. But I mean, what were they going to do? Go go all in on SGA last year when he wasn't this good, you know, like and he was good last year. But this Mm -hmm. is different. What we're seeing right now is a whole other level.
2: It's completely different. And you talk about blending the skill set of the pull-up jump shooting and the finishing. Just one stat that I think is remarkable on that. The short mid-range pull-up game especially. In terms of people who are leading the league in field goals made from 10 to 14 feet, SGA's second, he's only in a tier with KD right now. Last year, he was not even in the top 25. He's over Mm -hmm. two and a half times as many makes on 58% shooting from that range. So I agree with you. He has completely taken a leap. He has still been, for three years now, though, young, of course, but head and shoulders above everybody else in OKC. So it is a strange dynamic, but I agree with you. This is a different tier. Like Now you're looking at young star to superstar. That adjusts your outlook, I'm sure. We have a guy who's also in that young star category, though, already, I think. And that's Paolo Boncaro, who is dealing with an injury right now, so he's missed a few games, but has been one of the most prolific rookies that we have seen in a long time Jason he was your favorite guy in this draft ended up going number one have you been surprised by his immediate success in the league
1: absolutely I mean I knew he could score Mm -hmm. but it's more just the sheer the sheer efficiency of his scoring that is so unusual for a rookie um He's, in, he's averaging 1.11 points per ISO, including passes, which is 75th percentile in the league. He's averaging, this is insane, Carson, 1.41 points per post-up, including passes, which is in the 99th percentile in the league. I went back this morning and I watched every single Palo Banquero ISO and post-up from this season. And like, okay, starting with the ISO, everything's built out of this high hesitation in his left hand. He actually prefers to drive left because he likes to drop his right shoulder. But what's wild is there's clips in this in this set where he's going against some of the best perimeter defenders in the league who just can't handle him when he drops that right shoulder. You know, there's not really a player like him in the league right now. We have... Guys who are bowling balls, but that are kind of unpolished. Certain, like kind of think like Julius Randle, right? And then we've got like, you know, Giannis, which is just an alien. An it doesn't even really compare to anybody else in the league. And then we have a lot of really skinny wings and forwards that have some good footwork and pull-up jump shooting ability and a good handle. He's really the only guy of his archetype in the league who's like giant. Like just a grown man on the basketball court as a rookie who's got the handle to keep guys off balance and and kind of he's always just kind of dribbling and waiting for you to lean one way and then as soon as you lean one way he's just punching that gap with physicality dropping his shoulder and getting to the rim and then when you're sending extra defenders he's making the easy reads that are there in the post he's going like what's really interesting about him in the post is he's doing it in every single conceivable way he's balanced on which side of the floor he's attacking from he's going over his left shoulder just about the same amount as he's going over his right shoulder he'll turn and face and he does like kind of this violent rip through where he brings his elbows up high and and uh, dribbles on the right side of his body and then drops his left shoulder and then tries to go physically to the basket he's got so much versatility there that he's unpredictable and you know what's wild about it carson is like he's a rookie Doesn't know, doesn't really kind of feel the game yet. Doesn't really necessarily see the floor super well yet. Over time, he's just going to get better and better and better and better at this stuff. And just wait until the jumper is really polished. He's going to put on a number, another like five pounds of lean muscle. Like he'll probably be right around the same weight, but be more lean And, like, this kid is going to be so damn good scoring the basketball. Obviously, there's all these other different things we got to look at, like how he develops as a passer over the years, how competitive he is as a defensive player. What is he like just in terms of his demeanor on a night-in, night-out basis, in terms of bringing good effort and energy? There's always that kind of stuff that could be the things that derail him or prevent him from being, you know, instead of a top-10 player, he ends up being a top-30 player. Like, those are all the little forks in the road for him but he is massively exceeding any potential expectations as a scorer in this league. In fact, he's already one of the best ISO and post guys that we have.
2: He has a remarkable skill set, and in terms of just his production historically, he's scoring the most points per game by any rookie since David Robinson in 1990. And by the way, he was 24. He was kind of cheating in the rookie category, (laughs) So, and still an all-time great player. So I was really high on him. I think that you look at just the prospects we're getting overall. These are super evolved freaks who like didn't used to exist before. I thought he could score close to 20. This is 23 and a half on league average. Efficiency as a rookie is so impressive when he is the complete focal point of the magic offense. It is remarkable. And like he's been better in probably just about every way than we could have expected, but still as a prospect, this guy was a 6'10, 250 Crazy powerful athlete with a pretty darn good handle who could look like a wing in spots with the pull up jump shooting, who could attack out of the post, who could roll, who could push and transition. And he's even, you know, overachieved those expectations. I think the post game has been one of the most impressive things. I don't remember him demonstrating that kind of variety in college. It's been really impressive. And I think with the playmaking, you want to see it be more consistent, but his best moments as a passer are. He does some pretty advanced stuff sometimes. He makes some pretty remarkable finds in the corners, the ability to sort of adapt midair and still get the ball out with velocity and accuracy. So I agree, he has to develop there, but I think he really will because the moments that you see are so tantalizing, so impressive. The guy's a freak. I was a believer in Chet over him. I thought they were both great prospects and Chet's going to have to do a lot to validate that opinion right now because I'd be pretty confident that Paolo's is going to be an all NBA guy.
1: Yeah. I I've seen him get Andrew Wiggins off the dribble and just dog walk him to the basket. Yeah. I've seen him in the fourth quarter of a close game just bully Jason Tatum to the rim with a spin move for a basket. Like he, the wow. physical tools that he possesses are legitimate problems for people. Yeah. And not only that, it translates to the postseason specifically because we know that the bully ball stuff always translates better in the postseason than pull-up jump shooting and things along those lines, because everyone loses their legs and the shot accuracy and stuff goes down. Um, he's got good passing chemistry already with Wendell Carter jr where like he'll kind of work into the lane as he's posting up and then Wendell will just kind of cut behind the basket and he'll just elevate like he's going up for a shot and then just dump Mm -hmm. it down for an easy layup underneath the rim. He's good, man. I I got to see him up close and personal when I was in Vegas this year and I remember sitting there thinking like, okay, Jaden Ivey was the most impressive player in the sense that like Mm -hmm. I came away from that thing being like, Wow, I can't believe how good he is. I didn't expect that. And we could talk about Jaden Ivey some other day. But, like, but yeah, like, even in spite of that, the Paolo thing just was just hitting everybody in the face in that arena because he's huge. He's just bigger than everybody. It's like he's 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 kind of an archetype of player that we haven't seen in a long time. He
2: is an incredible mismatch.
1: Oh, go ahead.
2: I was just saying, you're completely right. We don't see people like him. No matter who you try to guard him with, he's a mismatch. He will overpower your wings. He will get by your fours and bigs. He's just a monster.
1: Yes, he is. And I'm very much looking forward to watching him. This was fun, Carson. We got to do this more often, and we got to get into some more of these young guys. All right, guys, that is all we have for today. As always, we sincerely appreciate your support. We are off for the weekend, and then we're going Monday, Tuesday, next week before we take some time off for Thanksgiving. As always, I appreciate your support and we will see you on Monday.